Section four of Lords of the House Tops Thirteen Cat Tales edited by Carl Van Vechten. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Psychical Invasion by Algernon Blackwood Part two Evil scheming thoughts came to me, visions of crime, hateful pictures of wickedness, and the kind of bad imagination that so far has been foreign indeed impossible to my normal nature the pressure of the dark powers upon the personality murmured the doctor making a quick note eh i didn't quite catch pray go on i am merely making notes you shall know their purport fully later even when my wife returned i was still aware of this presence in the house it associated itself with my inner personality in most intimate fashion and outwardly i always felt oddly constrained to be polite and respectful towards it to open doors, provide chairs, and hold myself carefully deferential when it was about. It became very compelling at last, and if I failed in any little particular, I seemed to know that it pursued me about the house, from one room to another, haunting my very soul in its inmost abode. It certainly came before my wife, so far as my attentions were concerned. But let me first finish the story of my experimental dose, for I took it again the third night, and underwent a very similar experience delayed like the first in coming, and then carrying me off my feet when it did come with a rush of this false demon laughter. This time, however, there was a reversal of the changed scale of space and time. It shortened instead of lengthened, so that I dressed and got downstairs in about twenty seconds. In the couple of hours I stayed and worked and study passed literally like a period of ten minutes. That is often true of an overdose, interjected the doctor, and you may go a mile in a few minutes or a few yards in a quarter of an hour it is quite incomprehensible to those who have never experienced it and it is a curious proof that time and space are merely forms of thought this time pender went on talking more and more rapidly in his excitement another extraordinary effect came to me and i experienced a curious changing of the senses so that i perceived external things through one large main sense channel instead of through the five divisions known as sight smell touch and so forth you will, I know, understand me when I tell you that I heard sights and saw sounds. No language can make this comprehensible, of course, and I can only say, for instance, that the striking of the clock I saw as a visible picture in the air before me, I saw the sounds of the tinkling bell, and in precisely the same way I heard the colors in the room, especially the colors of those books in the shelf behind you, those red bindings I heard in deep sounds, and the yellow covers of the French bindings next to them made a shrill, piercing note, not unlike the chattering of starlings. That brown bookcase muttered, and those green curtains opposite kept up a constant sort of rippling sound, like the lower notes of a wood horn. But I only was conscious of these sounds when I looked steadily at the different objects, and thought about them. The room, you understand, was not full of a chorus of notes, but when I concentrated my mind upon a color, I heard as well as saw it. "'That is a known, though rarely obtained, effect of cannabis indica,' observed the doctor. "'And it provoked laughter again, did it? "'Only the muttering of the cupboard bookcase made me laugh. "'It was so like a great animal trying to get itself noticed, "'and made me think of a performing bear, "'which is full of a kind of pathetic humour, you know. "'But this mingling of the senses produced no confusion in my brain. "'On the contrary, I was unusually clear-headed "'and experienced an intensification of consciousness.' and felt marvellously alive and keen-minded. Moreover, when I took up a pencil in obedience to an impulse to sketch, a talent not normally mine, 
I found that I could draw nothing but heads, nothing in fact but one head, always the same, the head of a dark-skinned woman with huge and terrible features and a very drooping left eye, and so well drawn too that I was amazed, as you may imagine. And the expression of the face? Pender hesitated a moment for words, casting about with his hands in the air and hunching his shoulders. A perceptible shudder ran over him. What I can only describe as blackness, he replied in a low tone. The face of a dark and evil soul. You destroyed that too? queried the doctor sharply. No, I have kept the drawings, he said with a laugh, and rose to get them from a drawer in the writing desk behind him. Here's all that remains of the pictures, you see, he added, pushing a number of loose sheets under the doctor's eyes. Nothing but a few scrawly lines. That's all I found the next morning. I had really drawn no heads at all. Nothing but those lines and blots and wrinkles. The pictures were entirely subjective, and existed only in my mind which constructed them out of a few wild strokes of the pen. Like the altered scale of space and time, it was a complete delusion. These all passed, of course, with the passing of the drug's effects, but the other thing did not pass. I mean the presence of the dark soul remained with me. It is here still. It is real. I don't know how I can escape from it. It is attached to the house, not to you personally. You must leave the house. Yes, only I cannot afford to leave the house, for my work is my sole means of support. And, well, you see, since this change I cannot even write. They are horrible, these mirthless tales I now write, with their mockery of laughter, their diabolical suggestion. Horrible. I shall go mad if this continues. He screwed up his face and looked about the room as though he expected to see some haunting shape. The influence in this house, induced by my experiment, has killed in a flash, in a sudden stroke, the sources of my humor, and though I still go on writing funny tales, I have a certain name, you know, my inspiration is dried up, and much of what I write I have to burn, yes, doctor, to burn, before anyone sees it. As utterly alien to your own mind and personality? Utterly, as though someone else had written it. Ah, and shocking. He passed his hand over his eyes a moment, and let the breath escape softly through his teeth. Yet most damnably clever, in the consummate way the vile suggestions are insinuated under cover of a kind of high drollery. My stenographer left me, of course, and I've been afraid to take another. John Silence got up and began to walk about the room leisurely, without speaking. He appeared to be examining the pictures on the wall, and reading the names of the books lying about. Presently he paused on the hearth rug with his back to the fire and turned to look his patient quietly in the eyes. Pender's face was gray and drawn. The hunted expression dominated it. The long recital had told upon him. "'Thank you, Mr. Pender,' he said, a curious glow showing about his fine, quiet face. "'Thank you for the sincerity and frankness of your account. But I think now there's nothing further I need ask you.' He indulged in a long scrutiny of the author's haggard features, drawing purposely the man's eyes to his own, and then meeting with a look of power and confidence calculated to inspire even the feeblest soul with courage. And to begin with, he added, smiling pleasantly, let me assure you, without delay, that you need have no alarm, for you are no more insane or deluded than I myself am. Pender heaved a deep sigh and tried to return the smile. And this is simply a case, so far as I can judge at present, of a very singular psychical invasion, and a very sinister one, too if you perhaps understand what I mean. 
"'It's an odd expression. You used it before, you know,' said the author wearily, yet eagerly listening to every word of the diagnosis, and deeply touched by the intelligent sympathy which did not at once indicate the lunatic asylum. "'Possibly,' returned the other, "'and an odd affliction, too. You'll allow, yet one not unknown to the nations of antiquity, nor to those moderns, perhaps, who recognize the freedom of action under certain pathogenic conditions between this world and another.' "'And you think?' asked Pender hastily, that it is all primarily due to the cannabis? There's nothing radically amiss with myself, nothing incurable or... Due entirely to the overdose, Dr. Silence replied emphatically, to the drug's direct action upon your physical being. It rendered you ultra-sensitive and made you respond to an increased rate of vibration. And let me tell you, Mr. Pender, that your experiment might have had results far more dire. It has brought you into touch with a somewhat singular class of invisible, but of one, I think, chiefly human in character. You might, however, just as easily have been drawn out of the human range altogether, and the results of such a contingency would have been exceedingly terrible. Indeed, you would not now be here to tell the tale. I need not alarm you on that score, but mention it as a warning you will not misunderstand or underrate after what you have been through. You look puzzled. You do not quite gather what I am driving at, and it is not to be expected that you should. For you, I suppose, are the nominal Christian with the nominal Christian's lofty standards of ethics, and his utter ignorance of spiritual possibilities. Beyond a somewhat childish understanding of spiritual wickedness in high places, you probably have no conception of what is possible once you break down the slender gulf that is mercifully fixed between you and that outer world but my studies and training have taken me far outside these orthodox trips, and I have made experiments that I could scarcely speak to you about, in language that would be intelligible to you. He paused a moment to note the breathless interest of Pender's face and manner. Every word he uttered was calculated. He knew exactly the value and effect of the emotions he desired to waken in the heart of the afflicted being before him. And from certain knowledge I have gained through various experiences, he continued calmly, I can diagnose your case, as I said before, to be one of psychical invasion. And the nature of this, er, invasion? stammered the bewildered writer of humorous tales. There is no reason why I should not say at once that I do not yet quite know, replied Dr. Silence. I may first have to make one or two experiments. On me? gasped Pender, catching his breath. Not exactly, the doctor said with a grave smile. But with your assistance, perhaps. I shall want to test the conditions of the house, to ascertain, if possible, the character of the forces of this strange personality that has been haunting you. At present you have no idea exactly who, what, why? asked the other in a wild flurry of interest, dread, and amazement. I have a very good idea, but no proof, rather, returned the doctor. The effects of the drug in altering the scale of time and space, in merging the senses, have nothing primarily to do with the invasion. They come to anyone who is fool enough to take an experimental dose. It is the other features of your case that are unusual. You see, you are now in touch with certain violent emotions, desires, purposes, still active in this house, that were produced in the past by some powerful and evil personality that lived here. How long ago, or why they still persist so forcibly, I cannot positively say but I should judge that they are merely forces acting automatically with the momentum of their terrific original impetus. Not directed by a living being, a conscious will, you mean? Possibly not, but none the less dangerous on that account. 
and more difficult to deal with. I cannot explain to you in a few minutes the nature of such things, for you have not made the studies that would enable you to follow me. But I have reason to believe that on the dissolution at death of a human being its forces may still persist and continue to act in a blind, unconscious fashion. As a rule, they speedily dissipate themselves. But in the case of a very powerful personality, they may last a long time. And in some cases, of which I incline to think this is one, these forces may coalesce with certain non-human entities, who thus continue their life indefinitely, and increase their strength to an unbelievable degree. If the original personality was evil, the beings attracted to the leftover forces will also be evil. In this case, I think there has been an unusual and dreadful aggrandizement of the thoughts and purposes left behind long ago by a woman of consummate wickedness and great personal power of character and intellect. Now do you begin to see what I am driving at a little? Pender stared fixedly at his companion, plain horror showing in his eyes, but he found nothing to say, and the doctor continued. In your case, predisposed by the action of the drug, you have experienced the rush of these forces in undiluted strength. They wholly obliterate in you the sense of humor, fancy, imagination, all that makes for cheerfulness and hope. They seek, though perhaps automatically only, to oust your own thoughts and establish themselves in their place. You are the victim of a psychical invasion. At the same time, you have become clairvoyant in the true sense. You are also a clairvoyant victim. Pender mopped his face and sighed. He left his chair and went over to the fireplace to warm himself. You must think me a quack to talk like this, or a madman, laughed Dr. Silence. But never mind that. I have come to help you, and I can help you, if you will do what I tell you. It's very simple. You must leave this house at once. Oh, never mind the difficulties. We will deal with those together. I can place another house at your disposal. Or I would take the lease here off your hands, and later have it pulled down. Your case interests me greatly, and I mean to see you through, so you have no anxiety and can drop back into your old groove of work tomorrow. The drug has provided you, and therefore me, with a shortcut to a very interesting experience. I am grateful to you. The author poked the fire vigorously, emotion rising in him like a tide. He glanced towards the door nervously. "'There's no need to alarm your wife or to tell her the details of our conversation,' pursued the other quietly. "'Let her know that you will soon be in possession again of your sense of humor and your health, and explain that I am lending you another house for six months. Meanwhile, I may have the right to use this house for a night or two for my experiment. Is that understood between us?' "'I can only thank you from the bottom of my heart,' stammered Pender, unable to find words to express his gratitude. Then he hesitated for a moment, searching the doctor's face anxiously. "'And your experiment with the house?' he said at length. "'Of the simplest character, my dear Pender. Although I am myself an artificially trained psychic, and consequently aware of the presence of discarnate entities as a rule, I have so far felt nothing here at all. This makes me sure that the forces acting here are of an unusual description. What I propose to do is to make an experiment with a view of drawing out this evil, coaxing it from its lair, so to speak, in order that it may exhaust itself through me and become dissipated forever. I've already been inoculated, he added. I consider myself to be immune. Heavens above! gasped the author, collapsing onto a chair. 
"'Hell beneath might be a more appropriate exclamation,' the doctor laughed. "'But seriously, Mr. Pender, that is what I propose to do, with your permission.' "'Of course, of course,' cried the other. "'You have my permission and my best wishes for success. "'I can see no possible objection, but—' "'But what? "'I pray to heaven you will not undertake this experiment alone, will you?' "'Oh, dear, no, not alone.' "'You will take a companion with good nerves and reliable in case of disaster, won't you?' "'I shall bring two companions,' the doctor said. "'Ah, that's better. I feel easier. I am sure you must have among your acquaintances men who—' "'I shall not think of bringing men, Mr. Pender.' The other looked up sharply. "'No, or women either, or children. I don't understand. Who will you bring, then?' "'Animals.' explained the doctor, unable to prevent a smile at his companion's expression of surprise. Two animals, a cat and a dog. Pender stared as if his eyes would drop out upon the floor, and then led the way without another word into the adjoining room where his wife was awaiting them for tea. A few days later the humorist and his wife, with minds greatly relieved, moved into a small furnished house placed at their free disposal in another part of London and John Silence, intent upon his approaching experiment, made ready to spend a night in the empty house on the top of Putney Hill. Only two rooms were prepared for occupation, the study on the ground floor and the bedroom immediately above it. All other doors were to be locked, and no servant was to be left in the house. The motor had orders to call for him at nine o'clock the following morning. And meanwhile, his secretary had instructions to look up the past history and associations of the place and learn everything he could concerning the character of former occupants, recent or remote. The animals, by whose sensitiveness he intended to test any unusual conditions in the atmosphere of the building, Dr. Silence selected with care and judgment. He believed, and had already made curious experiments to prove it, that animals were more often and more truly clairvoyant than human beings. Many of them, he felt convinced, possessed powers of perception far superior to that mere keenness of the senses common to all dwellers in the wilds, where the senses grow especially alert. They had what he termed animal clairvoyance, and from his experiments with horses, dogs, cats, and even birds, he had drawn certain deductions, which, however, need not be referred to in detail here. Cats in particular, he believed, were almost continuously conscious of a larger field of vision. Too detailed even for a photographic camera, and quite beyond the reach of normal human organs, he had further observed that while dogs were usually terrified in the presence of such phenomena, cats, on the other hand, were soothed and satisfied. They welcomed manifestations as something belonging peculiarly to their own region. He selected his animals, therefore, with wisdom, so that they might afford a differing test, each in its own way, and that one should not merely communicate its own excitement to the other. He took a dog and a cat. The cat he chose now full-grown, had lived with him since kittenhood, a kittenhood of perplexing sweetness and audacious mischief. Wayward it was and fanciful, ever playing its own mysterious games in the corners of the room, jumping at invisible nothings, leaping sideways into the air and falling with tiny moccasined feet onto another part of the carpet, yet with an air of dignified earnestness which showed that the performance was necessary to its own well-being and not merely done to impress a stupid human audience. In the middle of elaborate washing, it would look up, startled, as though to stare at the approach of some invisible, 
cocking its little head sideways and putting out a velvet pad to inspect cautiously. Then it would get absent-minded, and stare with equal intentness in another direction, just to confuse the onlookers, and suddenly go on furiously washing its body again, but in quite a new place. Except for a white patch on its breast, it was coal-black, and its name was Smoke. Smoke described its temperament as well as its appearance, its movements, its individuality, its posing as a little furry mass of concealed mysteries, its elfin-like elusiveness, all combined to justify its name. And a subtle painter might have pictured it as a wisp of floating smoke, the fire below betraying itself at two points only, the glowing eyes. All its forces ran to intelligence, secret intelligence, wordless, incalculable intuition of the cat. It was indeed the cat for the business in hand. The selection of the dog was not so simple, for the doctor owned many, but after much deliberation he chose a collie called Flame from his yellow coat. True, it was a trifle old and stiff in the joints, and even beginning to grow deaf, but on the other hand it was a very particular friend of Smoke's, and had fathered it from kittenhood upwards so that a subtle understanding existed between them. It was this that turned the balance in its favor, this in its courage. Moreover, though good-tempered, it was a terrible fighter, and its anger when provoked by a righteous cause was a fury of fire and irresistible. It had come to him quite young, straight from the shepherd, with the air of the hills yet in its nostrils, and was then little more than skin and bones and teeth. For a collie it was sturdily built, its nose blunter than most, its yellow hair stiff rather than silky, and it had full eyes unlike the slit eyes of its breed. Only its master could touch it, for it ignored strangers and despised their pattings, when any dared to pat it. There was something patriarchal about the old beast. He was in earnest, and went through life with tremendous energy and big things in view, as though he had the reputation of his whole race to uphold. And to watch him fighting against odds was to understand why he was terrible. In his relations with Smoke he was always absurdly gentle. Also he was fatherly, and at the same time betrayed a certain diffidence or shyness. He recognized that Smoke called for strong yet respectful management. The cat's circuitous methods puzzled him, and his elaborate pretenses perhaps shocked the dog's liking for direct, undisguised action. Yet while he failed to comprehend these torturous feline mysteries, he was never contemptuous or condescending, and he presided over the safety of his furry black friend somewhat as a father, loving but intuitive, might superintend the vagaries of a wayward and talented child. And in return, Smoke rewarded him with exhibitions of fascinating and audacious mischief. And these brief descriptions of their characters are necessary for the proper understanding of what subsequently took place. With Smoke sleeping in the folds of his fur coat and the collie lying watchful on the seat opposite, John Silence went down in his motor after dinner on the night of November 15th. And the fog was so dense that they were obliged to travel at quarter speed the entire way. It was after ten o'clock when he dismissed the motor and entered the dingy little house with the latch-key provided by Pender. He found the hall gas turned low and a fire in the study. Books and food had also been placed ready by the servant according to instructions. Coils of fog rushed in after him through the open door and filled the hall and passage with its cold discomfort. The first thing Dr. Silence did was to lock up smoke in the study with a saucer of milk before the fire, and then make a search of the house with flame. The dog ran cheerfully behind him all the way, while he tried the doors of the other rooms to make sure they were locked. He nosed about into corners and made little excursions of his own account. His manner was expectant, 
He knew there must be something unusual about the proceeding, because it was contrary to the habits of his whole life not to be asleep at this hour on the mat in front of the fire. He kept looking up into his master's face, as door after door was tried, with an expression of intelligent sympathy, but at the same time a certain air of disapproval. Yet everything his master did was good in his eyes, and he betrayed as little impatience as possible with all this unnecessary journeying to and fro. If the doctor was pleased to play this sort of game at such an hour of the night, it was surely not for him to object. So he played it too, and was very busy and earnest about it, into the bargain. After an uneventful search they came down again into the study, and here Dr. Silence discovered Smoke washing his face calmly in front of the fire. The saucer of milk was licked dry and clean. The preliminary examination that cats always make in new surroundings had evidently been satisfactorily concluded. He drew an armchair up to the fire, stirred the coals into a blaze, arranged the table and lamp to his satisfaction for reading, and then prepared surreptitiously to watch the animals. He wished to observe them carefully without being aware of it. Now, in spite of their respective ages, it was the regular custom of these two to play together every night before sleep. Smoke always made the advances, beginning with grave impudence to pat the dog's tail, and Flame played cumbrously with condensation. It was his duty, rather than pleasure. He was glad when it was over, and sometimes he was very determined and refused to play at all. And this night was one of the occasions on which he was firm. The doctor, looking cautiously over the top of his book, watched the cat begin the performance. It started by gazing with an innocent expression at the dog, where he lay with nose on paws and eyes, wide open in the middle of the floor. Then it got up and made as though it meant to walk to the door, going deliberately and very softly. Flame's eyes followed it until it was beyond the range of sight, and then the cat turned sharply and began patting his tail tentatively with one paw. The tail moved slightly in reply, and Smoke changed paws and tapped it again. The dog, however, did not rise to play as was his wont, and the cat fell to patting it briskly with both paws. Flame still lay motionless. This puzzled and bored the cat, and it went round and stared hard into its friend's face to see what was the matter. Perhaps some inarticulate message flashed from the dog's eyes into his own little brain, making it understand that the program for the night had better not begin with play. Perhaps it only realized that its friend was immovable, but whatever the reason, its usual persistence thenceforward deserted it, and it made no further attempts at persuasion. Smoke yielded at once to the dog's mood. It sat down where it was and began to wash. But the washing, the doctor noted, was by no means its real purpose. It only used it to mask something else. It stopped at the most busy and furious moments and began to stare about the room. Its thoughts wandered absurdly. It peered intently at the curtains, at the shadowy corners, at empty space above, leaving its body in curiously awkward positions for whole minutes together. Then it turned sharply and stared, with a sudden signal of intelligence at the dog. And Flame at once rose somewhat stiffly to his feet and began to wander aimlessly and restlessly to and fro about the floor. Smoke followed him, padding quietly at his heels. Between them they made what seemed to be a deliberate search of the room. And here, as he watched them, noting carefully every detail of the performance over the top of his book, yet making no effort to interfere, it seemed to the doctor that the first beginnings of a faint distress betrayed themselves in the collie, and in the cat the stirrings of a vague excitement. He observed them closely. The fog was thick in the air, and the tobacco smoke from his pipe added to its density. The furniture at the far end stood mistily, and where the shadows congregated in hanging clouds under the ceiling, it was difficult to see clearly at all. 
The lamplight only reached to a level of five feet from the floor, above which came layers of comparative darkness, so that the room appeared twice as lofty as it actually was. By means of the lamp and the fire, however, the carpet was everywhere clearly visible. The animals made their silent tour of the floor, sometimes the dog leading, sometimes the cat. Occasionally they looked at one another as though exchanging signals, and once or twice, in spite of the limited space, he lost sight of one or the other among the fog and the shadows. Their curiosity, it appeared to him, was something more than the excitement lurking in the unknown territory of a strange room. Yet so far it was impossible to test this, and he purposely kept his mind quietly receptive, lest the smallest mental excitement on his part should communicate itself to the animals, and thus destroy the value of their independent behavior. They made a very thorough journey, leaving no piece of furniture unexamined or unsmelt. Flame led the way, walking slowly with lowered head, and Smoke followed demurely at his heels, making a transparent pretense of not being interested, yet missing nothing. And at length they returned, the old collie first, and came to rest on the mat before the fire. Flame rested his muzzle on his master's knee, smiling beatifically while he patted the yellow head and spoke his name, and Smoke, coming a little later, pretending he came by chance, looked from the empty saucer to his face, lapped up the milk when it was given him to the last drop, and then sprang upon his knees and curled round for the sleep it had fully earned and intended to enjoy. Silence descended upon the room. Only the breathing of the dog upon the mat came through the deep stillness, like the pulse of time marking the minutes, and the steady drip-drip of the fog outside upon the window's ledges dismally testified to the inclemency of the night beyond and the soft crashings of the coals as the fire settled down into the grate became less and less audible as the fire sank and the flames resigned their fierceness. It was now well after eleven o'clock, and Dr. Silence devoted himself again to his book. He read the words on the printed page, and took in their meaning superficially, yet without starting into life the correlations of thought and suggestion that should accompany interesting reading. Underneath all the while his mental energies were absorbed in watching, listening, waiting for what might come, he was not over-sanguine himself. Yet he did not wish to be taken by surprise. Moreover, the animals, his sensitive barometers, had incontinently gone to sleep. After reading a dozen pages, however, he realized that his mind was really occupied in reviewing the features of Pender's extraordinary story, and that it was no longer necessary to steady his imagination by studying the dull paragraphs detailed in the pages before him. He laid down his book accordingly, and allowed his thoughts to dwell upon the features of the case. Speculations as to the meaning, however, he rigorously suppressed, knowing that such thoughts would act upon his imagination like wind upon the glowing embers of a fire. As the night wore on, the silence grew deeper and deeper, and only at rare intervals he heard the sound of wheels on the main road a hundred yards away, where the horses went at a walking pace owing to the density of the fog. The echo of pedestrian footsteps no longer reached him, the clamor of occasional voices no longer came down the side street. The night, muffled by fog, shrouded by veils of ultimate mystery, hung about the haunted villa like a doom. Nothing in the house stirred. Stillness in a thick blanket lay over the upper stories. Only the mist in the room grew more dense, he thought, and the damp cold more penetrating. Certainly from time to time he shivered. The collie, now deep in slumber, moved occasionally grunted, sighed, or twitched his legs in dreams. Smoke lay on his knees, a pool of warm black fur, only the closest observation detecting the movement of his sleek sides. 
It was difficult to distinguish exactly where his head and body joined in that circle of glistening hair. Only a black satin nose and a tiny tip of pink tongue betrayed the secret. Dr. Silence watched him and felt comfortable. The collie's breathing was soothing. The fire was well built and would burn for another two hours without attention. He was not conscious of the least nervousness. He particularly wished to remain in his ordinary and normal state of mind, and to force nothing. If sleep came naturally, he would let it come, and even welcome it. The coldness of the room when the fire died down later would be sure to wake him again. And it would then be time enough to carry these sleeping barometers up to bed. From various psychic premonitions he knew quite well that the night would not pass without adventure. But he did not wish to force its arrival. He wished to remain normal, and let the animals remain normal so that when it came it would be unattended by excitement or by any straining of the attention. Many experiments had made him wise, and as for the rest he had no fear. Accordingly, after a time he fell asleep as he had expected, and the last thing he remembered, before oblivion slipped up over his eyes like soft wool, was the pitcher of flame stretching all four legs at once and sighing noisily as he sought a more comfortable position for his paws and muzzles upon the mat. It was a good deal later when he became aware that a weight lay upon his chest and that something was penciling over his face and mouth. A soft touch on the cheek woke him. Something was patting him. He sat up with a jerk and found himself staring straight into a pair of brilliant eyes, half green, half black. Smoke's face lay level with his own, and the cat had climbed up with its front paws upon his chest. The lamp had burned low, and the fire was nearly out. Yet Dr. Silence saw in a moment that the cat was in an excited state. It kneaded with its front paws into his chest, shifting from one to the other, he felt them prodding against him. It lifted a leg very carefully and patted his cheek gingerly. Its fur, he saw, was standing ridgewise upon its back. The ears were flattened back somewhat. The tail was switching sharply. The cat, of course, had wakened him with a purpose. And the instant he realized this, he set it upon the arm of the chair and sprang up with a quick turn to face the empty room behind him. By some curious instinct, his arms of their own accord assumed an attitude of defense in front of him as though to ward off something that threatened his safety. Yet nothing was visible, only shapes of fog, hung about rather heavily in the air, moving slightly to and fro. His mind was now fully alert, and the last vestiges of sleep gone. He turned the lamp higher and peered about him. Two things he became aware of at once. One, that smoke, while excited, was pleasurably excited. The other, that the collie was no longer visible upon the mat at his feet. He had crept away to the corner of the wall farthest from the window, and lay watching the room with wide-open eyes, in which lurked plainly something of alarm. Something in the dog's behavior instantly struck Dr. Silence as unusual, and calling him by name he moved across to pat him. Flame got up, wagged his tail, and came over slowly to the rug, uttering a low sound that was half growl, half whine. He was evidently perturbed about something and his master was proceeding to administer comfort, when his attention was suddenly drawn to the antics of his other four-footed companion, the cat. And what he saw filled him with something like amazement. Smoke had jumped down from the back of the armchair, and now occupied the middle of the carpet, where, with tail erect and legs stiff as ramrods, it was steadily pacing backwards and forwards, in a narrow space, uttering as it did so those curious little guttural sounds of pleasure that only an animal of the feline species knows how to make expressive of supreme happiness. Its stiffened legs and arched back made it appear larger than usual, and the black visage wore a smile of beatific joy. Its eyes blazed magnificently, 
It was an ecstasy. At the end of every few paces it turned sharply and stalked back again, along the same line, patting softly and purring like a roll of little muffled drums. It behaved precisely as though it were rubbing against the ankles of someone who remained invisible. A thrill ran down the doctor's spine as he stood and stared. His experiment was growing interesting at last. He called the collie's attention to his friend's performance to see whether he too was aware of anything standing there upon the carpet. And the dog's behavior was significant and corroborative. He came as far as his master's knees and then stopped dead, refusing to investigate closely. In vain Dr. Silence urged him. He wagged his tail, whined a little, and stood in a half-crouching attitude, staring alternately at the cat and at his master's face. He was apparently both puzzled and alarmed, and the whine went deeper and deeper down into his throat till it changed into an ugly snarl of awakening anger. Then the doctor called him in a tone of command he had never known to be disregarded. But still the dog, though springing up in response, declined to move nearer. He made tentative motions, pranced a little like a dog about to take to water, pretended to bark, and ran to and fro on the carpet. So far there was no actual fear in his manner, but he was uneasy and anxious, and nothing would induce him to go within touching distance of the walking cat. Once he made a complete circuit, but always carefully out of reach, and in the end he returned to his master's legs and rubbed vigorously against him. Flame did not like the performance at all. That much was quite clear. End of Part 2 of The Psychical Invasion